0: All right, let's get started, everyone. Today I have the distinct pleasure of uh, welcoming Dr. Mark Walsh and Dr. Rick Skubsky, uh, uh to Maryland to talk on two separate topics, the first being uh, the TAG and Rotem, so basically a way to analyze uh, somebody's coagula- coagulability status, and the second talk being uh, one on providing anesthesia in austere invi- environments. Um, So to give you a little bit of background, uh, they both come from South Bend, Indiana, uh, where uh, Dr. Walsh works at uh, Notre Dame, and where I originally met him uh, years ago, and um, he is actively involved in numerous projects. He is, uh, does both bench and clinical research in TAG and platelet mapping and uh, its role in a variety of disease processes. Uh, and um, to match it, he works at the bedside in the ED, uh, numerous shifts a month, um, works uh, on the medicine floors, attending numerous uh, shifts a month, many times going from one uh, location to the other um, with uh, unending energy. Um, he. Uh, uh, to give you an example, he's going back. He has to leave after this to go back to do a night shift tonight and came in late last night uh, for the same reason. Um, so nothing stops these two guys. Uh, I was down in Haiti a few weeks ago uh, with them. Mark had uh, hemoptysis down there, and uh, I think he's the only guy that uh, uh, should be screened upon entering Haiti for, uh, <laughs> for uh, TB, but, um, but he doesn't have it. He's on steroids and inhalers, so we're in good shape, everyone. So uh, but I want to welcome the, both these guys here. So we can get started. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I've had a uh, high-resolution
1: CT scan, and everything is fine. Because since the age of 16, I've been PPD positive. Um, that's what you need to know. Uh, and I'm on a, a boatload of inhalers. And uh, when you see the, the tremble, it's not because I have uh, uh, Parkinson's is because I don't like this uh, steroid and albuterol. Uh, I have these disclosures to make. I'm the Speaker's Bureau, and many uh, years ago, uh, Dr. Castellino at Notre Dame was provided a Teg for research and reagents. But, um, Teg and Rotem, goal-directed blood component therapy and anesthesia in an austere environments. The enemy of good is better. Uh, I'm going to connect those two somehow. And basically, my objectives are to describe viscoelastic tests, Teg and Rotem, and their utility for providing goal-directed blood component therapy for hemorrhage. I'm going to compare the European anesthesiology-supervised Rotem for the most part, and now in the United States, it's coming, versus the United States trauma surgeon-supervised Teg-guided blood component therapy as if... The European version of the algorithms is like an elegant concentrated coffee that Dr. Gerlinger uh, pointed out was the way Europeans approach resuscitation, whereas Americans like go to 7-Eleven and get their coffee black, and that's kind of the way you look at the TED algorithms, and I'll show you everyone by the time they leave this room will know how to read a TED. It's gonna be hard to follow the Rotem protocol, which is a good protocol, but it takes a while learning it. I'm gonna apply this simple TED shovel analogy that i use to the algorithms for safe administration of anesthesia by emergency physicians as dr Skupskys and any other anesthesiologist assistant we are only assistants i want to give special recognition uh, i'm not a university center i'm a i don't have slaves to go around and do my work I call them fellows and have a nice dinner once in a while and then they work 80 hours a week for me off the books um, I want to thank Chloe Sherry, Tyler Rigney, Madura Sundarovic, and all want to get in med school and go to residency. I want to thank my wife. This is where I was made. This is my mom's house, which is now a bed and breakfast. Elsa Maria Sarvi was 28 years old when she married my dad. And uh, I went to medical school in Italy. I'm proud of it. Um, but I left for a lot of reasons. I wanted uh, a different type of medicine, less algorithm driven. And without my wife, I, this is not just my lovely wife. Without my wife, I'd probably be homeless. And Mike understands that this energy has to be channeled. I also want to thank my academic associate, Michael Danino, because he has created this. He was my first slave as an undergraduate working with coagulation. And Michael uh, called me when he was at uh, Henry Ford. And he says, hey, uh, Dr. Walsh, I got this really neat guy. Manny Rivers, we're going to do this trial on uh, sepsis. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard about it. Let me tell you what you're going to find out, Mike. You're going to find out that Manny Rivers needs to be everywhere. That is, it's not the algorithm. It's Manny Rivers by the bedside. All right? This guy's trained like nobody's trained at Pittsburgh. He's one of the best doctors in the world. That's all. And in the end, Mike, you know, you give him four or five liters of fluid, give him a little pressure, source control, give him antibiotics, and just stay by the bedside. That's it. That's the algorithm. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, the process trial proved me right. That and Hawthorne effect. You don't need all this. You don't need the Edwards cath, you don't need SVO2. I was always suspicious about 15% that got the butamine. What's magic about that? That That's complicated and that's part of my talk. That's Michael Danino. He has established the Danino University Without Walls or duh, and it's a lot of people who've worked with me and Mike over the years who've gone around and we've, we've just gone our merry ways. Once in a while we published Mike McCurdy as a member. When Mike DeNino was in a wilderness between jobs, he didn't have anybody to hang out with, so he he hung out with me academically, writing papers about resuscitation, complaining that a woman who we resuscitated from a cardiac arrest who was 20 weeks pregnant, you look at the old guidelines, first contraindication was pregnancy. We said, this is stupid. So Mike and I wrote a letter, and then Mike McCurdy, Mike DeNino, and I published this as a case report. It's hard to get case reports published in the New England Journal. The Donino University Without Walls has now expanded all over the place. Uh, Tim Pullman at Indiana University, uh, we've just written a paper that was in press from Blood Review, and it looks at damage control resuscitation, and you can see the trauma is representative of about, you know, a large percentage of the people who get blood components. So when you talk about massive transfusion protocol, you're going to talk about trauma, you're going to talk about heart surgery and transplantation for the most part, but the areas are growing. Uh, everybody knows about the coagulopathy of trauma, and I'm not going to talk about it. I don't know what the ideology is, but we owe this man a great debt. John Holcomb um, was in, at Black Hawk Down. Not a, peop- not a lot of people know that, and he was the surgeon down there when they lost 14 uh, soldiers. Out of the 200, they were um, attacked, and more uh, died in the uh, combat hospital and later in Germany, and he said never again. So the Department of Defense went and looked at the, Vietnam era Da Nang Lung, high volume, ATLS, but it stayed there forever. Two liters guideline before you do anything. And they decided to invent you know, the concept of damage control resuscitation. He mustered out of the army in 2009, after he published his famous paper of his 44 sh- soldiers who were shot in Fallujah during the 2004, I believe it was, uh, um, insurrection. He showed that TAG predicted massive, those who needed massive transfusion. And he came to Notre Dame and looked at what we were doing. Since 2007, we've been using TEG with platelet functionality, figuring if it works for the hearts, we really find a sweet spot. Why the hell don't you use the TEG with platelet functionality for people who have coagulopathy of trauma? Because I don't want a sweet spot. I just want to throw glue on it and get them to stop bleeding. That was our hypothesis. He said, you know, you guys are good. I said, what are we going to do? He said, put in some of your own money, go over to that Notre Dame guy who's a fibrinogen plasminogen researcher and see if you can, can make some music first thing we did in 2011 i believe it is we published in blood uh two knockout mice tissue factor deficient and activated protein c deficient and we looked at their tags alone and then at the um, at the progeny it's kind of interesting that they corrected one another it was it was very interesting uh, trauma-induced scolagulopathy is bad for you the problem is we don't know how to define it it started out of the INR of 1.8 and 1.3. Basically, by the time your INR is up, the cow's out of the barn. And that's one of the reasons this is a very important test, because there are abnormalities that may, that may show up on the TEG before uh, they show up elsewhere. Because Basically, the PT, PTT, INR are not very helpful. D-dimer is not very good for fibrinolysis. There are two technologies, and I'm here to talk about the two. Now, this talk is, gonna be, is like drinking from a fire hydrant. Slides are going to go fast, but in the end, you'll know about the tag and you'll know a little bit about the rotem, and that's my goal. Uh, if you want to get into the weeds about these things, we can do it later, but I just want to roll. Basically, this is the important part of the talk. You have a cup, and in that cup, you put blood, 0. 0.36 cc's, in a heated crucible that turns at 4.5 degrees, 4.75 for the rotem. The turning's different there. degrees, and as it turns, fibrin binds with the pin. The cascade goes along, the antiquated cascade, and then as the clot matches with the pin, connects with it, it moves the pin, and that moves a transducer, a pressure transducer, that measures millimeter. So you get a curve that goes up on the y-axis and on the x-axis you have time and then you double the curve, and you get a picture that looks like that. Looks like a shovel, a spade. I prefer a fish, and later I'll tell you why. This is before there's any connection between the pin and the cup. That's the R. That means that's like R. The angle with which the pin moves, the, uh, is moved, that is the angle that it goes up on the, sh- on the screen, tells me about fibrinogen. And the width tells me about fibrinogen and platelets as they contract the clot having formed. And then the clot dissolves and it drops down. Now most people, we all have a little natural fibrinolysis. One or 2%, I mean that's how we go. But we can define those who are having fibrinolysis in trauma in other settings by that parameter and by others. So, this is the enzymatic phase: fibrinogen, platelets, and thrombolysis. That's all it is. There, you now know how to read a tag. It's that easy, and you'll see how. Think of the tag as a shovel, and you're in a graveyard doing work. You're working. Let's say you work at the VA, and you don't want to really do work. All right, and so you, you're working there, and you you want to get paid, but you don't want to. Dig the dirt, because if you dig the dirt, bodies are going to come and fill it. So the analogy, the dirt is the blood. So you want a short shovel, thick handle, no tip, right? That's it. There you go. That's a great-looking tag. See it? When it's real wide, it's hypercoagulable. Oh, and by the way, we use these to predict people who's going to get a filter.
2: Because, you know, they're
1: controversial now. We're a little extra careful with our trauma patients who have a big, thick tag afterwards for DVT prophylaxis. That's a bad tech. You're gonna to have to actually, you're gonna move earth with this. This person needs everything. And because this patient has, needs coagulation factors, needs cryoprecipitate, needs platelets, and needs tranexamic acid. There's no doubt. We'll talk about the crash too a little bit later. If you got something like that, it looks like a fish, right? And remember what Luca Brasi happened to him. If you don't fix this, you're gonna be swimming with the fishes. Then you have platelet functionality. Now we're getting into the weeds. You get two more cups, and in a cup you put heparin, and in the third cup you put adenosine diphosphate because if you put the heparin in there, thromba doesn't act in the platelets, and they're just hanging around. And you see what aspirin and adenosine diphosphate does, and that's our niche because this is heparin sample with only fibrin working, right? Cascade comes down, bang. You make fibrin. That's a fibrin clot, a pure fibrin clot, You add ADP to it and arachidonic acid, and it moves up. This curve moves up, and it moves up to the baseline. The percentage of it's moving up to the baseline tells me the percentage of activation. We represent it as present inhibition because that's what we want. There it is. See, this is about 50% up there, so the inhibition is about 42%, all right? A little more than 50%, 58%. So, if you really want to understand it, read the best thing ever written about this. In the blood bulletin, it comes up. It's simple, people have told me, and you'll see why shortly. Ah, my shovel. This is the normal tag in black, and here's an abnormal tag. Long R, flat angle, very narrow MA, and peaked. So where's the angle? I mean, what's the algorithm we're gonna use here? Prolonged R, give uh, plasma or in Europe, they give prothrombin complex concentrate, three-factor, bariplex, and case centra Low flat angle, less than 45, give cryoprecipitate. Narrow MA, and give platelets and cryoprecipitate. In my renal patients, if I, we, we get a couple who uh, have a pelvic fracture they bleed like hell, we give DDAVP to them. Um, and if they have an increased LY30, you give them um, antifibrinolytic agent. Now, this is where it's controversial, because it's different in every country, in every lab, and this is the reason it's taking time to catch on. This is a great paper uh, from Germany uh, and Switzerland, and Alberto Grossetto is from Italy. Practical application of this, these tests, the Rotem, the Teg, you know about the Teg already. The Rotem, it's different. It's like Europe, top-down, kind of Barona. You got kings and queens over there, they run the show, all right? The democracy is just down there staring the pot, you know, just looking around. It would be the anesthesiologist over there? And I've got evidence of this. You're smiling, Are you an anesthesiologist? No, okay. But the bottom line is that they run critical care. It's hard to find emergency physicians over there because they they run the show. The anesthesiologists run resuscitation. It's kind of interesting. And they do a really good job of it too because the pin does the turning, but the curve looks the same. The nomenclature is different. But they do it differently in terms of te- NTEM, it's, they use elegeic acid instead of kaolin. It's basically dirt. It activates the, the process. Heptem is where they put heparinase in if you have a patient on heparin. XTEM, FIMTEM, and Aptem are with tissue factor in there. The TEG has a rapid tag that I'm not going to talk about, but it has tissue factor, and it jolts things up and it gets it going quickly. And if you put cytokalasein D, which is an antiplatelet agent, you can isolate fibrinogen, we call it functional fibrinogen, in the Teg. And in Aptam, if you add a protonin, which is an anti-old-fashioned um, called trazolol, I remember when they used to use, used to use it, it's, it's like tranexamic acid in amicar. it allows you to determine fibrinolysis, fibrinolysis that needs to be treated. It's a pretty neat test. But then you've got to measure platelets. So you need another machine to really look at platelet function specifically because the platelet functionality you get with the MA now we're in the weeds. It's only after 5% thrombin's done. After the thrombin burst, after everything's uh, done, there's more platelet function that is missed on the dysfunction that's missed on the tag. So you need the multiplate, which is basically electrocuting pu- uh, uh, platelets. You electrocute them, and if they clump, it shows up um, as a curve that looks like that. The area under the curve you'll see uh, in trauma patients in Europe, you'll see a flat curve just like if somebody was on a drill. This is again is the platelet mapping, it's in one unit. So the bottom line is Europeans have two machines, there are other machines you can use verify now, versus the tag with one machine. So this is in tribute, in glowing tribute to Dr. Klaus Gerlinger. I wanna thank him for a great lecture that he gave. And he's right, the Europeans approach this differently. They have a king or a queen at the head of the bed. That's done. 15 years of training. They do hearts. They do lungs. The ORs. They go in and out of the OR. They run trauma. It's fascinating. It really is. And when they give things, they give a little bit of thrombin complex concentrate, and we'll just give just a touch of um, of uh, tranexamic acid, of course. And uh, we, we like to give them uh, rather than cryoprecipitate. Know, we have soluble uh, fibrinogen because they're quite cheap. You know, the government's paying for it. Whereas Capitalists that we are you get out of 7-eleven You get a cup of coffee. You can put a little milk in it, and you're done The analogy is for reading these things as well Um, Is are they similar tests? Well, they are because the nomenclature up top is R is the clotting time is alpha is the alpha is maximum amplitude is the maximum clot firmness is to Ly 30 or clot lysis at 30 or 60 and ly 30 all right, so it's the same thing It's just, this is what they look like. This is the sheet that comes out. You've got different slides. You've got uh, somebody who's, um, this is a a hyperfibrinolytic patient. You can see there with a narrow MA. This is a XTEM, a normal XTEM. And then this is where they put that antiplatelet agent. So you can see the functional fibrinogen. And um, basically this is the HEPTEM. Somebody was on uh, heparin. So... The preference from this paper that just came out for viscoelastic tests appears to reside primarily on geography in the United States, while Europeans mostly use Rotem, and that's changing. Now, when you compare these things, the heterogeneity that he mentions down here is a problem for some of these tests. And randomized controlled trials are hard to find other than in heart literature that you're gonna make a big difference using these things, but it will come, it will reduce Blood use in heart and transplantation. But the bottom line is that everybody's using them, it's coming down the pike. Um, these are samples. They look just like pegs that you've seen. There's their algorithm, okay? Now, you saw my algorithm that was published a long time ago. Holcomb cited it in his paper. But it's ours, mine's simple. This is a this is a tough algorithm to read because you have to understand. A- X-TEM, greater than APTEM, FIB-TEM, X-TEM, clotting time, x time at 10 minutes, treat them immediately, it it looks complicated, and so it's daunting. It's not too bad, but it's a little complicated, and it doesn't measure platelet function. Otherwise, it's a pretty good test, and I think in the United States, what's holding much of this up is the fact that surgeons can't read it. The anesthesiologists are not as involved in trauma as they are in Europe so it stands to reason that this good test is gonna take a little longer to catch on. Compare this to that, all right? I mean, this is easy. R is long, give something, give some fresh frozen plasma. Alpha's down, give plasma or prothrombin complex concentrate. Your angle's flat, give cryoprecipitate. And if you got a narrow MA, give platelets. To increase the LY30, you get an antifibrinolytic agent. And you might give platelets if they're inhibited, but Dr. Gerlinger very astutely noted that you don't want to pour oil on the fire if it's going to worsen their traumatic coagulopathy as it can for brain injury, for example. So if Dr. Gerlinger wants a cup of coffee, he goes down to Sweet Pirates Coffee Shop, and he gets one of those. When John Holcomb wants a cup of coffee, you know he follows the algorithm, puts the proper concentration. He goes to the 7-Eleven he gets himself a cup of coffee. That's the difference. It's a difference rooted in history. So Europeans, I think it's logical that they use that, and it's logical that Americans use the Rotem, because it's so, uh, the, the, the tag with platelet mapping, because it's simple. They're different techniques. I think the fact that we can argue that blood, pro- blood component resuscitation I never, you know, there will be someday a study showing that one is better than the other, whether you give concentrate or you give blood components. But right now, I think there are other reasons why we are so simple over here. Now I know about this, because I'm gonna quickly through this. I went over there, the De Nino University at Waltz, a graduate is Julie Mackenhauer. Notice we're a hospital, and notice that the surgeon is smoking a pipe in the hospital. And also notice that they serve beer at lunch, okay? And notice that they had a big crowd and they had a beer break. And notice that th- these two students probably didn't hear the second part of my lecture very well. And they actually had a dispenser going around, pouring beer, so I have this picture. This, I didn't taste any, but I did this for posterity. Actually, my second part of the talk could have been a lot more interesting and taken a lot longer if I had imbibed, but I couldn't resist the picture. This man is the chairman of the department. He's an excellent physician, excellent. He's an anesthesiologist, devoted, does hearts, lungs, the whole nine yards, trained in California in trauma. What a man. He's the chairman of their department, and he publishes stuff. They have anesthesiologists and ambulances. So they have a different system. I liked being over there. It was the best three days of my life after my honeymoon. Speaking of which, I'll move on. Um, I. Um, they actually have a fire pole. And I spent the night there, and you go down the pole, the greatest threat of my life was going through the, the wilds of Aarhus, Denmark, at 120, 140 kilometers an hour. I was terrified. Uh, I survived. They drive like that all the time over there. Then I went down to see the famous uh, Jakob Stenzbale at um, in hospital. and there he is with his tag. He's famous, I'm not, I don't want to be famous because I don't do rubber chicken dinners because I lose contact. I want to work, work, work. And once in a while, somebody asks me to come and give a talk, I'll give it. I've outsourced the talking to the visionary, who's the surgeon. He does all the talking. I just write the slides. Look at this room. See that tag? Man, I'd kill for that. Right there. They have a call of transfusion experts. They have, for every massive transfusion, they call somebody in, and there's a transfusion specialist that's either trained in pathology or anesthesia running the show. It's brilliant. So we have different ways of looking at it. The Europeans are more baronial. They have these regimented go- guys like the Redcoats, okay? They got to outsource to the Hessian troops, 30,000 of them. Jo- uh, King George did because they were stuck. Hessian troops to do multi you know, to look at platelet function. And it's a little complicated. That's what it looks like. That is a bunch of British Redcoats with the Hessians trying to do this. Here's the United States. First of all, it's a dollar bill. I want to get that clear, okay? That's one of the reasons we don't have concentrate here because K-Centra is so damn expensive. I'm not making a political statement. I'm just saying what it is. He has no pedigree and he has no title and his soldiers are kind of rough-hewn and they improvise and they got only one tool, one-stop shopping. Not completely accurate platelets we can argue about. But the bottom line is for a soldier in a revolutionary army who doesn't have uniforms, Carrying a shovel as an algorithm beats the hell out of having a bunch of flashcards attached to a ring. And it's apparently good for you for penetrating injury. It's, it's better than if you don't have it, All right? That's the tag, that's Ken Maddox. Ken Maddox came, heard me talk about it, and said this is pretty interesting stuff. He liked it, he said it's the best analogy he's ever heard. He has his shop, they don't use a rapid tag, they use plain old tag. That algorithm that I showed is his algorithm. So the bottom line is that everybody's getting in on this. This is Johansson in Europe. He has, that's basically the same algorithm that I showed. It's just it has the fibrinogen uh, as well with functional fibrinogen. And this was in blood, this came out. Holcomb got together and they published this paper. And on the top, you got the tag. On the bottom, you got the Rotem. That's just the way it works. And here's their protocol. We all start out with black coffee, I'm sorry. The Canadians call it a foundation ratio. And you throw six, six, and six to them. Once you decide who has massive, who needs massive transfusion, then you get your TEG running, and you have goal-directed, visco, hemostatic assay, or botem or TEG, and you just keep giving blood products as the way it looks. In the United States, the origin of our trauma system starts at the OK Corral. It really does, because the surgeon who took care of the Earp brothers, Virgil and Wyatt, is the kind of the founding father of the, uh, um, the American Association of the Surgery of Trauma in that it's his concept of dealing with penetrating injury because this Dr. Goodfellow, George Emory Goodfellow, did the first um, uh, laparotomy on a bar saloon and he used whiskey uh, as an anesthetic and, um, and he washed his hands and he had good results. So in the end, if you're from the United States and you used to be in a cowboy, you just go to the 7-Eleven. I'm going to do two cases in the next uh, seven or eight minutes, and then I'm going to wrap it up and give it to Dr. Skubsky. This happened Christmas Day. I was on, I got a phone call. Good guy from a little hospital. Hey, um, hi, Hey, is Dr. Brack. Yeah, I got a kid was shot with a 50 caliber rifle, went through the house and went in her leg. She's in shock. She's got a pulseless leg. I'm giving a little blood. You're a trauma center. Yeah, um, it's it's raining and I can't send her down south to Raleigh, but send her on. Then I made all the phone calls. I 50 caliber, that's big. That's a muzzle loader rifle. I see somebody nodding their head. You know, know about guns. Uh, the bottom line is, she had a big time problem. There's the entrance wound. Okay, laterally two pictures. They went in there, and the people I called, uh, I'll mention them later. The quality of our trauma team is that we handle it at our hospital and, and, and it, it, it was good not to send her away because when I saw her she was in shock she had received uh, a single 20 cc per kilogram bolus of blood I started giving her more blood and we got uh, her, her, her type and crossed and this is they went in there and they found a 12 centimeter segment 12 centimeters in a child of artery and vein that were gone and so we have expert surgeons who repaired it it took a long time to fix we had to put a stent in it Three hours, and I'm in the, I, my shift had ended and I went over there and I'm relaying all the information because we didn't know whether they're gonna keep her or not, whether it was gonna clot off. And I was the liaison between the pediatric intensive care and the surgeon. And the bottom line is that you can see here in the angiogram, it's totally blasted here. There's little few vessels from the femoral, but there's no way that this can be cared for. And you see afterwards, You can see the stent, excuse me, the deployment of the catheter as it's plugged in the artery as they repair it, and there you go. She's got a nice, live leg after the antibiotic pellets were were replaced, and eight days post-op, it worked. Now, she had a Teg, and it was normal, and it was important because she was hypotensive, but I don't want to give this lady blood products if she didn't need them, and it turns out she didn't need Uh, she probably, she was too shy of massive transfusion, but you certainly didn't know when I saw her. It was nice to have the assurance of this test. And the platelet functionality was normal as well. This is why she got better. Murray Hurwich, 33 years. Jerry, anesthesiologist. Jerry Duprat, 30 years. Chuck Peterson, one of the best vascular surgeons in the world, amazing. And then this guy just got back from uh, Afghanistan and he spent time in Haiti. Um, Kristen Manzak who, uh, when I called him up, the other guy, you know, nobody's happy when you call him with a little thing like that. I describe, he goes, cool, I'll be right in. This is his wheelhouse. Wheelhouse. The, the second case, and I'm going to wrap it up, is the Michigan game, 9-6, um, 14. That's the Notre Dame administration from the front, and a, a, a 48-year-old man was leaning over a railing from that height, okay? And he fell off the, he fell 60 feet, it's looking down, okay? 60 feet. He was intubated at the scene. He was hypotensive for a long time. Open cranial fracture with subdural, multiple rib fractures, pulmonary contusions, um, aortic tear, pelvic fracture, long bone fracture, splenic laceration, grade three. You couldn't stop the bleed, and I tell you, the pelvis bleeds like crazy. And we're, this is where we published. Uh, presented papers on this the tag is useful particularly there we gave high ratios of platelets based on our prior knowledge based on Holcomb's study to show that high ratio platelets in civilian and military trauma have better prognosis for those who need massive transfusion Uh, he actually did his own craniectomy I think that saved his life so we did a craniectomy other people still complain that it doesn't work I I beg to differ Um, his pelvis was trashed that had to be fixed and That's the normal Teg. His Teg was normal, but the platelets were completely inhibited, you see that? That red line should be up there. Inhibited at 1751, after he got 10 units of blood, still inhibited, all right? And even that evening, still inhibited. So he got the following ratios. Notice that all the blood, most of it was given in the first four hours, here. And you see how many platelets we gave up front? Normally I would never give. Each one of those is five or six units. That's a, that's a 25 to 16 ratio. But sometimes you have to do it, particularly with pelvic fractures. Um, in the end, we gave 23 uh, units of um, uh, uh, PAC cells, six units of, um, excuse me, yeah, 16, 23, eight, seven, and one. Uh, only one precipitate. Uh, Eight bags of platelets and uh, eight fresh frozen plasma. Not one-to-one-to-one, but guided by a shovel, basically. Now, this is the guy. This is Dr. Holcomb who got us into this platelet business. And this paper just came out, the proper study, that shows that one-to-one-to-one doesn't hurt you, but it doesn't prolong your life. And I'm going to tell you why. I know right away. They referred to it in the paper. It's catch up. Massive transfusion properly defined as six hours. If you haven't, if you're not better by six hours and you're giving somebody 20, 30 units of blood ink, it's going to be tough. The tech can help tell you that as well. So they refer in the papers that we're going to have to do subset analysis before we can say that one-to-one-to-one doesn't save life when it's really needed. Because a lot of those people, you know, massive transfusion, it's six hours. That's a big deal. Okay. So the bottom line is is that early dysfunction, we've noticed it. This is what we do. We look at traumatic brain injury. We see that in traumatic brain injury, there's inhibition of the platelet. I'm gonna wrap it up here, right there. In a mouse model, that's the control, percent inhibition. These are mouse that we banged on the head and made them coma-like. These are humans. You see those with the Glasgow Coma Scale. Less than eight are far different than those who don't have trauma. You can set a clock by this. This is a normal tag. This is the Teg with platelet mapping, a tag of person with severe traumatic brain injury. We had disruption of the blood brain barrier, and then I'll end on this note that we feel, and others do, that the liberation of free tissue factor to the brain, where factor 7a is normally in excess, causes the tissue factor and the factor 7a to bind, so you get a consumptive coagulopathy that leads to platelet inhibiting. Now, we got about 25 minutes, is that all right? 25 minutes, I'm gonna we'll talk about Haiti, about what we do. That same simple shovel philosophy, that same democratic principle, caused me to be here today because of this story. I've been going to Haiti for a while with the Notre Dame group of people. Uh, I ruined Mike's life, according to his wife, Marisa, she told me last night, when he came for four days uh, a few years ago, and now it, he's sending all his minions down there, and he just got back. Basically, after this disaster, where a quarter million people died, when this island, everybody pick up their hand like this for me, please. Just pick it up and do the Shaka sign. Now you know Haiti, all right? That's the top, that's the bottom, Port-au-Prince is here, and that island was cut longitudinally in half, dropped 12 feet in just a few seconds. Kind of disrupted the place. There were the three boats here, the Vincent, the Comfort, and the Hope, that were sending people out, and the only orthopedic hospital in the country is up there. So I got a team together. I had to have my anesthesiologist because I knew it was gonna be a problem. And what happened, they loaded them on a helicopter. We were there in a hot time just after, uh, in the second week. So we're getting a lot of people. Helicopters are coming in. Uh, and they land in this school field, bring the patients, there I am, and I triage. Either you go to the OR, which weren't many, most were stable, and they, or they were pre triaged if they needed care immediately, or they went in those tents. Those tents were just put up a couple days before we got there. Went from 69 to 470 beds in one week. It was magnificent. Look at look how clean these people are. These people, I love these people. They they do everything here. Here we are doing wound care rounds, and basically there's Mike Yergler. and all we did is amputation, X fixes, debridement all day long. That's all it is. You needed an anesthesiologist there. This was the type of amputation we did: debridement of wounds with kids, uh, amputations, amputations, split thickness grafts. You could operate all. You could you know you could operate as long as you wanted. This lady uh, lost her child and was sad, she was my patient, and very sad. We worked hard to keep her foot, because you know, a BK pro- a amputation does well with a prosthesis. And there we are working. We had burns, they, uh, a good fellow by the name of Ian, arranged for the transfer of eight of these amputees and burn patients to the Shriner's Hospital in Rhode Island. And all of a sudden, I get a phone call. There's a 50-year-old gentleman, who's an anesthesiologist, who's in a tent who takes hydrochlorothiazide, drinks a lot of water, and it's rainy and windy, and he was so sick. But the surgeons need him so bad, they got some saline. They said, "Well, here, just get some saline here. Take this." And they gave him three liters of this stuff over the course of the day. And then he's seizing. So they call me, Dr. Walsh, come quick, Dr. Rick's sick. I go, I run in, and there's my best friend lying in the bed seizing, and I'm paralyzed with fear, like you can't imagine, because this is my guy. By the way, I had to argue to get him on the tri- on the team, and then I did. What Arnie Goldstein taught me when I was a student, start from the beginning, walk, start at the top of the head. So I'm going back to when I'm at the VA and I grab his head and I look at it and his eyes are bulging and he's got blood coming out of his mouth. He's bitten his tongue and he's got a little double chin. He had a triple chin. He's got rales in his lung and his urine, he's incontinent. And he's got edema and he's got clonus. I'm like, I know what he's got. Those sons of bitches, those orthopedic surgeons, they gave probably anything that they could get their hands on. They gave him D5W, I'll bet you. What am I going to do? You know, some of the other guys, more intellectual, they suggested that it might be deep poisoning or malaria. I was very kind. I also had hidden information, and Dr. Mazefi um, has given me permission to say this. Um, we were stuck in an airport the night before for seven hours, and I think Rick had 12 beers. So there was a little bit of a beer potomania involved here as well. And here are the surgeons, and they all elected to get him off the island. All right? Uh, that's Mike Yergler, team physician for the Notre Dame basketball team. Fred Furlick, former team physician. Henry Delu, uh, this is chairman of the department uh, um, of uh, orthopedic surgeon at Gainesville. And I'm sitting there. I got the weight of the world on me. Like, he can't go. He can't go. I know what he has. We don't have any labs, so I gave him 40 Lasix. And we told the helicopters they were called go around. We don't want you. We don't want you. And there he is, about eight hours later, waking up. And what we his words were, when he found out, booby, I'd rather die than leave an island. He knew we needed him. There he is. We, I just got a picture of D5W because I bet that that's what they gave him. There's the team. Joey Garcia, wonderful critical care doctor, trained at Henry Ford by Michael Danino. What's not the like about that? George Friend, 40 years, practice as a general surgeon. He got good care there. Then the next day, he's got Dark urine. Dark urine. So we send off for a rhabdo test, that'll come back some, someday. I figured he had rhabdomyolysis, so he needed an IV, but we needed him working. Boom, there it is, that's it. He walked around like this for how many days? Eight days, okay, because we didn't know. So we kept sending these rhabdo things come back high. By the way, there was an over-under on his sodium within 10 minutes of him making the unit, and it was 117. Um, And there he is with the team. He came back. He said, boy, I love this trauma stuff. I said, how about becoming an ATLS instructor? So when Rick is on, he comes in, and he runs the trauma. I manage the airway. He does the trauma. There's Rick looking at the belly. That's not a bad ultrasound. Positive fast. He knows what to do. It really frosts everybody. We love it. This led him to say, hey, you know, Booby, we don't have anesthesia down there. Uh, you interested in me teaching you? I said, sure. So in three months, I did 60 cases with him on my back. we This is all peer-reviewed stuff. I'm like a student. I'm like a paramedic. Yeah, paramedics come in. And I've always gone to the OR to do intubations to keep my skills up. Because quite frankly, I'm very humble by the airway. And I defer to my anesthesiologist friends. And I think we're a team on this. But I keep my skills up. Because if you just intubated somebody every other week, I don't, I mean, I still know. It's, uh, particularly these big people. Oh, if you look at the author list here, you'll see a lot of people. Because a lot of people put into there. But here we have Father Rick Frechette, who's a priest and a physician down there. And we've got, you know, Mike McCurdy, Jim Lantry. We've got a lot of people. Because a lot of people put work into this. And of course, the senior author's we are and always will be uh, Haitians. So EP Gas Project was rejected by a journal. And it's Rick time now. So he said, maybe we should, the reviewer said, you should uh, send this to the creative writing section of our journal. That was a nice thing to say. So we, we said, that's fine. The next month in that same journal, and Rick's going to take over here,
2: Thankfully, what they did was remind us exactly why we did this. This is a plea from Dean uh, Marshbein from Doctors Without Borders saying, we don't have any anesthesiologists in these third world countries, and we need access to surgery. It was pretty much a good reminder, and it also meant that we really needed to stick it to them and tell them this is why. What I taught, Mark, was just a simple algorithm type thing that you would do with any incoming CA1 resident. Get a simple setup, four syringes sitting right here. You got two small ones right here, a large one, a medium, and they're all set up in an order that once he starts the induction sequence, they're just picked up in order. So at that point, doesn't even have to think. Start out with a little bit of glycopyrrolate. We used to give a little gemuron just to defaciculate them, give a little bit of fentanyl, give 15 cc's of propofol, five cc's of this have some rescue medicines drawn up ahead of time, and then sort of a little Rain Man approach, make sure that set up everything so it's ready for somebody who's new to doing anesthesia to keep them from getting lost or, or having some problems. We since cut it down to two syringes because we realized we didn't really need the, the Zemuron step. Half the time we were down there, we don't have any narcotics to use for surgery at all, so we just used some propofol, some succinylcholine, put the glycopyrrolate into this syringe because we're also running short on syringes half the time we're down there. Try to concern everything we do, but we sort of modify this approach every time we go. The first thing I really wanted to get Mark doing was get his bag mask skills up. So uh, I'm an old-time anesthesiologist. I still like doing cases with a mask. Right now it's a little difficult for me, but uh, I don't like using LMAs. Uh, I call that lazy man's anesthesia. Um, and so they're not my preference. But if you give somebody a couple of cases and make them mask somebody for something to the tune of two to three hours, they get very good at bag mass ventilation. So, what is able to happen at this point, he pushes his propofol, pushes his succinylcholine. The minute he sees entitled CO2, we know we got an airway we have no pro- there's no pressure now we know we can get an airway in the patient eventually we can ventilate the patient so as you saw this before there's a lot of people that have a lot of skin in this game uh Bhavesh patel he's from the mayo clinic we usually go down and do anesthesia for that team obviously mike mccurdy and james lantry have taken part as part of the training and have done some cases dr walsh had to leave early the last trip a day early so, Dr. McCurdy filled in, basically ran my second room for us. The whole idea is being able to get some work done while we're down there, and just having one anesthesiologist when you have two, three, four surgeons, not a lot's going to get done. The important thing to remember is that everything's above board here. All the patients are evaluated and supervised by an anesthesiologist. We're not doing anything that is considered uh, unethical. Patients are always being taken care of, patients get as good care as they would in the States. And I dare say that a few of the, the cases that Dr. Walsh did with me up in the United States probably got maybe better care than a couple of my partners who <laughs> seem to like to spend a little too much time on their cell phones. So simple mnemonic, mismade, and pretty much everybody who goes into anesthesia learns something like this, simple thing. Your pre-flight check, machine, suction, monitor, airway, IV drugs, go through, make sure all your gas supplies, you have no circuit leak, make sure you have suction that is there and is functioning. Then you just make sure your airway supplies are ready, all your monitoring equipment, make sure your IV is functional. And then just make sure the drugs which we've uh, talked about are already. Simple, sort of an induction sequence, start with pre-oxygenation and then we just go down the line and push the drugs as they come up, pick them up off the table, give them in that order. In the event that he pushed them in the wrong order, I just said, just give them a lot faster. It helps. Um, <clears throat> after the succinylcholine was given, bag mass ventilation confirmed with end-tidal CO2. And, and um <clears throat> endotracheal intubation, again, confirmed with n tidal CO2. At that point, dial our gas in, we were using a lot of sevoflurane. Uh, that's what we had available to us a few times. We ran out and had to use isoflurane. If, Um, Mark was not happy about it. You kind of brought me back to the old days of when I trained and realized, wow, that stuff is awful. It's awful. Mark did 60 cases with me in a a period of about three months. And what I really needed to do to get him trained was to have him do, we did, I pretty much threw everything at him. I figured we don't know we're going to get into in Haiti, so we might as well do everything. So we did a little bit of ortho a lot of ENT sur- surgeries, anything general, vascular, anything going on, you might as well just learn the whole routine. Basically the, the whole idea was to train him for the vigilance, to understand that a lot of stuff goes wrong in the OR. Circuits get disconnected, things happen, we needed to do something and that's what he really needed to do was just get a feel for what can go wrong in the operating room. The first trip we made to Haiti as, as a team together Mark did 14 cases. These were all minimum two, two to four, five-hour cases. Stable adults doing osteotomies and stuff. That freed me up to run a second room. So I was able to do all the pediatric cases, prone cases, the stuff that the anesthesiologist should be doing. But these were all done under sur- supervision. So we have a team of two to three surgeons who were able to run and get a lot more, at least double the, the amount of work done. <clears throat> This is not the first time something like this has been done. At the start of World War II, they realized they did not have enough people trained in anesthesia. At the start of World War II, the field of anesthesiology wasn't 100 years old yet. Um, So what they ended up doing was the University of Wisconsin turned around and did some 90-day training um, to train people in the field of anesthesia because this is what they needed. They had a lot of combat casualties and they needed to know what they were doing. Uh, Virgil Stolting, one of our legendary pioneers of anesthesia in the last century, he was one of such one of these uh, graduates. And this gentleman, Dr. Robert Stanton, is an orthopedic surgeon who we met on the first trip and he was the one who confirmed that it probably didn't help that we gave you all that D5W while you were sick, did it? Mark? In
1: terms of what we can do because of this. If you see this man, he's being fitted for a prosthesis. And um, you remember the lady that was said, she found her child, was reunited because the helicopter took her out, so she was worried. But most importantly, we took her, they took a risk not uh, taking the whole leg, because you, know, you don't know what's going to happen when you get septic down there. But look at her now. These kind of surgeries can be done because you got a lot of people who can come in and uh, do anesthesia and also assist as i have there's the setup that's the most important thing this picture this is like everybody was worried this is the first one then everybody got out of the room and in the middle of that case rick do you remember what happened he got called away to put an iv in a cholera tent to put a central line in a child so i'm running the whole show by myself and it worked well but the most important thing is my death grasp the C, and then I'm bagging them. The fighter's position. This is the essence of EP gas, airway. I don't do anything until I'm sure I got an airway. We had hand drills. Um, you'd see children like this one who come in with cholera at the same time. So there's another reason for an emergency physician to go down there as, an anesthetist, as an anesthetist, as an assistant. I'm doing other stuff. We're seeing other patients as well. There is six hours later. I ran, those drills miss, so I put together this little system where you take a 316-inch drill bit and put it in the, in the hexagonal, and you drill. You use that to drill it in. It works. There's a, we, and I called people at centers. We had this huge woman who had a huge leg, and it was infected, and it looked bad. That's elephantiasis. There's lots of filariasis down there. And doing anesthesia for this one, Rick, was tough because I ask you, when they take this leg off, I might have to change things in terms of her concentrations. because her, all of a sudden when you lose 100 pounds of a leg, your anesthetic needs change. I made a lot of phone calls. I was sweating that day. I said a lot of rosaries before, during, and after the case. Patient lived, has a crutch, but she's not dragging around that leg. We're putting this boy through medical school, three of us, Um, This is Donnie Zimmer, he's our visionary. He started this ICU. And importantly, there's education. Rick teaches the uh, CRNAs down there. They're very attentive, look at her sheet, very attentive. And this has led us, and I'm gonna uh, end here, to what we call EP gas two and CC gas. I did 14 cases. We're up to about 300 cases done in Haiti by emergency physicians and critical care physicians. 300. 300 cases never would have been done. Some of them, and these are not boutique surgeries. These are very important surgeries for these people. Hydrocele, cystoceles, circumcisions, which has a public health implication down there. We'll do it for the staff that work. They're often in their friends. And this is just a quick, rundown of the cases done by anesthesiologists, critical care physicians, and emergency physicians, not counting previous cases. We do spinals as well. There would be, and these are kind of the cases, of all the orthopedic cases. We do, uh, the, uh, the Mayo Clinic in um, Arizona lent us from Israel a laser machine that lasers the prostate. That's the something you got people walking around, 15 years with a Foley catheter, never had, haven't had a relationship with their wife and couldn't find a job, and they walk out. Boy, do they thank you. And we have uh, a fellow from the Mayo Clinic who comes down and, 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 and does this. A lot, of, a lot of goodwill. Okay? And basically, critical care physicians. Jim Lantry did 19 cases. Mike, you did about 10, 12? How many did you do? So we have critical care physicians who are now doing this and soon this number will increase and will be at this rate within a few years will be you know close to a thousand cases. Criticism could be justly raised and I bring this up now in these final points. Why don't you just do spinal anesthesia on these cases? Well, they got cleft palates down there, they've got nasty keloids that need to be removed and Uh, upper extremity uh, injuries are a problem they need to be taken care of, they don't do beer blocks we've done them down there but the other thing is the component that Mike McCurdy has been responsible for developing from an educational standpoint three years ago, four days of his life he came down and he changed mine and he changed his and he changed a lot of people Donnie Zimmer started three years ago the intensive care unit, Haiti's only free intensive care unit And it was staffed by physicians who were internists who we've we've taught how to intubate. And we've taught them to use an LTV 1200 for bridge ventilation. And in that three year period since we've started, probably more than 60 people have been intubated with bridge intubation in that unit by these physicians. Where do you think they get their experience? When we come down for EP gas, they do the intubations. Now, when we saw Gerard, one of the physicians, he said, oh, we, we intubate all the time. And the first case that we did, I was given, a Mike was given a, a lecture on ventilator-associated pneumonia. And I'm going to wrap up just a few minutes here. And I go, Mike, come on, cut it short. You know, Mike's a very didactic person. And the lecture's going on, and I'm going, Skupsky, Booby, go get him. So we're, and we had to do something. There was a patient on all four prongs with tetanus. The te- worst tetanus I've ever seen. I hadn't seen much before that. One guy is an orderly, an Amish guy in the 1960s. Just s- smiling, the sardonic smile, drooling. We had to intubate him. Perfect opportunity. Jean-Francois intubated this guy. We used up all the Vecaronium in Port-au-Prince in the first three days. They actually had to go out and get bootleg Vecaronium. We used up all the Ativan and kept this guy alive for 10 days using... Uh, text messages and FaceTime and things like that because we had to leave and there was no one there. That set the principle. That patient died, but what a learning opportunity for the future. And it wasn't, but two years later, then Fred Papali is down there. You hear Fred? Yeah. Fred Papali's down there. Fred's a very cautious person, he can pull the trigger, but it's thoughtful. He let them intubate that patient. It was very smooth, wasn't it, Fred? They intubated the patient, then Fred had to leave. They've got a patient on LT ventilator, what do they do? You text, text up to Mike, text up to Fred, send pictures with telemedicine and then we show up. The guy is extubated and there he is. This man would be dead if it wasn't for EP gas. This is not just about EP gas. So I'm just gonna run through some of the slides with one final message, take home message. There's Rick fixing the machine, gotta change it from French to English. Oxygen tubing, we create things. There's the room set up if you want to see it. I'm at this table. Rick's at the other room. He's very near. We consult one another. Um, he's always got that ironic smile. I concentrate. I'm a different person because this is a sacred, sacred obligation that I not, do not take lightly. Presidex, we found out that we can save by dropping in two cc's and 10 cc vial. Pull out a cc at a time. But They're all hypertensive. They're all tachycardic. And it's sparing uh, on, for narcotics, which we don't have often, and, 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 and anesthesia. This is Jim Lantry, setting up very confident. Son of a gun, he was already on the phone blogging. That, that, that killed me, you know, but he's smart, I, I don't. We have friends, you know, that Rick uh, attacks. Um, we, we did a lot of surgeries, taking out these masses that God knows what they are, sent them off for pathology. But they're not just little surgeries. This is our anesthesia record, and you see Walsh Skupski. Walsh Skupski, it's never Walsh alone, it's Walsh Skupski. These are official documents. We have charting, this is official, this is all by the book. This is someone improvising, filling a machine during a case. He picked it up because of the mismade algorithm, flight check. That would be Dr. McCurdy bagging the patient. Soda lime is running is running blue, it means you have to change your scavenger. This is the most important position, right here, post-extubation, anybody can put somebody to sleep, getting them up and wake them, is tough. You see his hand, he's got the patient at the jaw thrust, he's got the glove down so you can feel the air, and you, you take the patient to the OR, from the OR to the recovery room that way, so you're sure in the handoff that the airway is patent. We have a urologic surgeon who's doing plastic surgery on the ear, because that's what you need them for. This was a patient that had a lot of gastric insufflation, and Mike pointed out that the peak and the plateau pressures would be high, and explain why, when there's a reduction of ventilation by external pressure. There he is explaining to a, a family practice resident, Nicole Shurilla, and there I am on the last day before I left early, doing my case, keeping an eye, being vigilant at all times, hyper vigilant. And there I am, a patient's just getting his first breaths, so you see that little end title of 18 means that he's gonna start breathing soon. Always a good moment in my life. I cherish my first nameplate as much as any possession that I have. I'm proud of this. I owe it to my dear friend Rick Skupti. I owe it to the hospital that's allowed me to do this. And this is an obligation that I do not take lightly. And I suggest that others do not as well. This is not just going out and having fun. This is serious, serious work that we're doing, and my hope someday is down the road, teach those people. This, we have anesthesiologists, that they'll be doing it as well. So there we are, on the way home. I monitor his water intake, by the way, so he doesn't get hyponatremic again. And he had to have rotator cuff surgery. Rick doesn't have a wife. I have two wives, Rick and my wife. My wife wants something, she calls Rick. Rick talks to me, because I'm too busy doing things. So I had to sign the documents, and when I got home, There was this envelope on the table. I said, Rick, what's that? He said, Mark, I was frightened. The chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology came in on his own day to do Rick's anesthesia two weeks ago. He was frightened because he was gonna have general anesthesia, so he had his living will ready. That's how I end this talk. Thank you very much. Now, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Kept within the time limit, I hope. Thank you. Question for Rick? Yes. I think. Uh, this, doc, this is Dr. Uh, um, Mazeffi.
2: Well, the, the, the important thing to realize is this is where the anesthesiologist is always supervising, having these concerns and understanding the implications of those, and saying, I know that my, my colleagues from France like. Don't even routinely use neuromuscular blockers. They just like to use a lot of propofol, and that can be altered based on the pathophysiology of why the patient's going to sleep, how long, you know, how old is that <clears throat> injury, and things like that. So you will do that, and we can use some rock at a time. Although we have found that most most experienced anesthesiologists, I intubate most people with three cc's of, of, of Zemuron because it's you need, you need about half what you were, were taught as a resident, but for Uh, We found that if I switched up on Mark last trip and didn't tell him I wasn't using the sucks And then he found that it was a lot easier once I went back to the succinylcholine He found the airways a lot easier to handle so you do have to consider Yeah, yeah, so it's just a matter of uh, uh, Hundreds and hundreds versus 20 to 30,000 intubations just getting used to that that little tweak point right there but again, the, the whole point is is that the anesthesiologist is always looking at the finer points of what's going to happen, and that's the whole idea of making sure that we're we're not doing anything crazy or hurting anybody because we don't know what we're doing.
0: So,
2: so yeah, thanks, thanks,
0: Mark, thanks, Rick. Um, so yeah, I know that the time limit is uh, surpassed, so feel free to take off if you have uh, clinical obligations. But um, I have a. A uh, couple of comments. Yeah. I guess first about the EP gas, I think the key is, you know, how do we maximize benefit in limited resource places? And I think the concept that needs to be stressed is that the rate limiting step to the performance of surgeries in the developing world is uh, the presence of anesthesiologists. And so how do we uh, bring people in that have similar skill sets that can, you know, reach that, uh, meet that same goal of um, handling airway, handling physiology, et cetera. Um, So it's a good experience for those that are interested in participating in that, so let us know.